God of the covenant, in the glory of the cross, your son embraced the power of death and broke its hold over your people. In this time of repentance, draw all people to yourself, that we who confess Jesus as Lord may put aside the deeds of death and accept the life of your kingdom. Amen. Amen. Our psalm this morning is, is Psalm 25, and I'll read the first 10 verses. Psalm 25, verses 1 through 10. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Teach me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Don't remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. Isn't that such a raw and honest prayer? <laughs> Lord, don't remember my sins. <laughs> it's just so honest this morning. Don't remember the sins of my youth. Please don't remember my rebellious ways. But according to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his ways. All of the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep his covenant. That's our word this morning. So Lord, as we sing of your love this morning, as we consider the covenants that you make with us, that you have made with your people, throughout the narrative of Scripture and the covenant you make with us in the person of Jesus, would we remember your love for us? Would we remember today all of the things that you have done, the things that you're doing, as we put hope in the things that you will do, not only in this season of Lent, but beyond as well? So be with us in our praying, be with us in our reading, be with us in our singing right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tom's going to lead us in a few songs, and uh, we can engage with those how, how you'd like. So let's do that. I'd like to read a story uh, before we have a time of prayer about a covenant. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is... The portion of Scripture that accounts for the covenant that God formed after uh, the flood, right? Noah and Noah and the flood. So, if I could read about that covenant, we won't we won't necessarily read the story of the 
of the conditions of the flood necessarily and what led to it, although we will talk about that. Um, So I'll be starting at verse 8. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. And then we'll have a time of prayer together. So the flood happens, and um, then the waters go back down, and then this is what God says. God said to Noah and to Noah's sons that were with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between you between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I will set a rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all of life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. A little bit repetitive, right? God and all of life. God and all of life. God and all of life. So we're going to take a moment to pray. Um, it, this, this prayers of the people time, we have, we've slightly added to it um, since we've been regathering for the last few weeks. Um, I will briefly read a prayer, and then we'll have a time of, of stillness for you all to pray the things that are on your heart and mind this morning. But then we'll have a time where, we, um, where, where I will read aloud some different things happening in the community, um, these, these kind of short phrases, and then after those phrases, we will all say together out loud, Lord, hear our prayer, so that we can experience this kind of corporate prayer, this corporate worship together through prayer. Um, for the weeks to come, there will be a piece of paper, just like there is this morning, um, a piece of paper up here with a pen on it. And if you enter, if you, if you arrive at a gathering on any Sunday and there is something that you would like to be prayed for during that time where, where I would say it out loud and then we would all say together, Lord, hear our prayer, um, then you would be welcomed to, to write that on that piece of paper as you arrive and then write your name next to it just so we can, we can affirm you are the one bringing that prayer to the local church um, and then we can come around you in that time. Um, of prayer. So that'll be here every morning and in, in the weeks to come, um, and you're, you're welcome to use that as needed. So let us posture our hearts and minds and even our bodies for prayer, um, for engagement with the God who hears us and his, is near us. 
So I will briefly uh, pray us into this time, and then we will pray together. Beloved friends, in this season of repentance and healing, we accept God's invitation to be ever mindful of the needs of others. So let us then offer our prayers on behalf of God's community in the church and the world. Lord, we ask that you would draw near to those who are working in the medical community during this pandemic. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we ask that you would draw near to those who are working in education and who are being stretched and needing to be creative during this pandemic. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be with Sasha as she nears the end of her pregnancy and the arrival of a sweet baby boy. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, we ask that you would be with Chris Kohler as he recovers from a recent surgery and with Cassie and the kids. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we ask that you would draw near to those, our neighbors, who are currently without homes and needing to live on the streets or in shelters. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we ask that you would be near those and strengthen those who are serving our neighbors who are without homes in this cold season. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we ask that you would be with those, strengthen those who are on the front lines of justice initiatives all over our city and this nation and this world. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, fill us with your strength to resist the seductions of our foolish desires and the tempter's vain delights, that we may walk in obedience and righteousness rejoicing in you with an upright heart. Amen. And amen. Amen. Um, we, we've already read from Genesis chapter 9. We have one more passage that we'll read this morning from the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is in the New Testament, and what, what we generally say about First and Second Peter is that it is written in the voice of Peter. There isn't as, as close of a consensus as we would like as far as authorship. You know, it would be very easy to say that the Apostle Peter wrote these letters and very well might have. At the very, very least, it was written by someone who was very close to Peter, who was able to write in the voice of Peter. 
And so we will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. And you'll hear that this letter um, talks about the flood. It, it talks about the, 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 the flood narrative and Noah and the ark and, and all of those things. And so there's a very, very direct connection here um, with, with our stories. So I'll go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8, and we'll uh, finish out the chapter there. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because this you were called to, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And we'll go ahead and stop there. A lot going on in those verses. A lot going on. And we're going we're gonna to give it our best shot to, to make sense of it all. I, I do want to make mention of an uh, Old Testament scholar and theologian. His name's Walter Brueggemann, and he's brilliant. And he has an incredible commentary on the book of Genesis. And I wanted to say this right at the beginning because there will be a time where I quote him directly, but his work very much has influenced the direction that we're going in today. Um, just how he is able to 
um, really help us see these stories in Genesis. So shout out to, to Walter Brueggemann and his work on the book of Genesis. Um, I, I want to say, before we really get into the verses of these passages, that um, we need to look at Genesis carefully. And what I mean by that is Genesis 1 through Genesis chapter 11 is considered to be the prehistory of the nation of Israel, that being the people of God. We, we know this. Um, the words of Genesis themselves were written and collected over 3,000 years ago from now, give or take a few centuries. Um, and we don't have any idea when the events before Abraham historically took place. The story of Abraham and beyond being Genesis chapter 12, right? So we're talking about the creation narrative. We're talking about, of course, the flood narrative this morning. These stories that are told and accounted for between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 11 are considered a prehistory that um, give us, at their best, what they give us is ancient Israel's insights into their perceptions of God's relationship with creation and creation's relationship with God and how we are to understand that. I'm going to repeat that. Prehistory, right? Genesis chapter 1 versus Genesis chapter 11, this prehistory of the nation of Israel. At its best, those texts give us insights into how the Israelites 3,000 years ago perceived God's relationship with them and their relationship with God. We on the same, we're on the same page here? And of course, how do you be on that page? That's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's crazy. But it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit in the weeds, and I get that, but it's important for us to, to know that. Um, in all actuality, it's, it's real, it really is crucial that we as Christians today do our best to grapple with that dynamic. It, it really is, and it, and it takes a lot to get there, and sometimes it doesn't seem important, but when we're talking about how we are to treat and talk about and engage with and glean from the Scriptures it really does help us understand in what frame these words were written in. It, it, it really, really does help us. And so we are engaging in a story that is probably in one of the more ambiguous parts of the Scriptures as a whole. The first couple of chapters of Genesis are really, really hard to grapple with sometimes. And so that's why I wanted to give that little caveat. <laughs> Um, our hope, my hope in prayer is that engaging with these texts really, really expand our imaginations of who God could be and, and who God is. And so I'm hoping that we can 
we can get there today. In this season of Lent, throughout it, we have a heightened sense of suffering. It's one of the the key themes of the season of Lent is this idea of suffering, particularly the suffering of Jesus Christ, both in life and on the cross, and in light of the ancient story of a global flood with a preserved remnant and an eternal promise. We've read about this covenant. We have a question that we can ask. In light of covenant, in light of suffering, in light of a flood, we ask a question this morning. And the question is, how does God respond to chaos? That is a really important question for us this morning. We're going to see it in a few moments. We're going to see it in the, the, the flood narrative, but we're also going to see it in the life of Jesus. How does God respond to chaos? And today we can also ask, because we're looking at some prehistory texts, we're looking at Genesis chapter 9, we can also ask, how did Israel think that God responds to chaos, right? So, so we are engaging in the discussion ourselves, but we're also engaging in the discussion with Israel. We're reading the text that Israel wrote down about how they thought God responded to chaos. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it tells us that it was God's observation of human wickedness and inclination towards evil that brought about the destructive flood. So there's the chaos, right? The, the scriptures would say that it seemed as though almost every single human being on the planet was bent towards evil. So that's the chaos. So how does God respond to it? Two things to keep in mind. Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, tells us that God still wanted to preserve some human creation. So there's one key response, is that to the chaos and to this destruction of a flood, one thing that we learn is that part of God's response is still wanting to preserve human creation, which is really good news for us, by the way, because here we are. And the second thing we want to look at is the passage that we read earlier, Genesis chapter 9, which shows us God's covenant with all life on earth and a promise for it to never be destroyed again. So those are two key points as we consider how God responds to chaos. God still wants to preserve something, and then there is this eternal, everlasting promise to never see this kind of destruction again. Unfortunately, God's great mercy shown in preserving humanity did not cause a once-and-for-all act of repentance on the count of humanity. We, we know this. We, we keep reading the Scriptures. We look at life today, and there's still plenty of wickedness, right? We've, we've read about it before. We've heard about it. We, we see it. So we then fast forward to the life of Jesus as described by the voice of the Apostle Peter. We just read that section. In the person of Jesus, we see God responding to chaos once again. 
we, we fundamentally believe that because we believe that God is a trinity, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, parent, child, spirit, um, this, this dynamic, this, this mysterious dynamic, we have to believe that Jesus Christ as a human being when Jesus was on earth was God in flesh. We, we have to believe that. And we do believe that. And so in the life of Jesus, we once again get an example of how God responds to chaos. We just read this, but I'll read it again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20 gives us the response. Christ also suffered once for sins. That's a response to chaos. Suffering for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. Wow. I like that. After being made alive again, get this. It was this exact moment when I texted Tom and said, can we do reckless love this week? <laughs> it was this exact moment. Hear this. We, we've already read it, but I want to highlight it. After he was raised and made alive again, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits in the age of Noah. <laughs> Jesus, God, breaks out of time and space and somehow goes back into time and preaches the gospel to the people who ignored God and Noah 3,000 years prior or something like that. You talk about beating down walls and going, looking around in shadows and hunting people down, right? Preaching the gospel to those who were disobedient long ago when God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. God in the person of Jesus responds to chaos by suffering and then going back and telling those who were asleep at the time what God has done by defeating death. Good luck getting your head around that. When people feel like there is no hope, I think one of the primary things that results is hostility. And oftentimes I don't think it's a, sub, it, it, it's, a, it's a conscious act. I think it just sometimes bubbles up to the surface is that when there's such a deep sense of hopelessness in people, hostility results. This can be hostility towards creation. This can be hostility towards governments. This can be hostility towards other people. This can be hostility towards our own selves. We can be hostile towards our own selves. And this can even mean hostility towards God. But we see it throughout history. If, if there doesn't seem to be hope on either side of a political aisle, if there doesn't seem to be hope for global poverty solutions, if there doesn't seem to be hope in in my, our, present circumstances here today, right now, 
slowly and increasingly over time, hostility results. Now, I don't know if it's coincidentally, ironically, whatever word you want to use, there might not be a better two passages for us to consider as we reflect on one of Reachway's one of Reachway Church's values, and that is resilience. This idea that God never gives up on us, this idea that God will give a covenant, this idea that God will save a remnant, this idea that God will, in fact, break all time and space barriers and travel back and, and find spirits and bring them back and, and save them. If God doesn't give up on us, we shouldn't give up on us. Because even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of chaos, how is God responding to chaos? God does not give up. Even in the midst of chaos, God's love for humanity is remembered. We read that. God says, when I see that rainbow, I'm going to remember I'm going to remember love. And in the face of chaos, God remembers and then acts with mercy and not hostility. So I'm going to quote Walter Brueggemann right now. This is a direct quote from him in his Genesis commentary. I almost fell out of my chair when I read this. It is remembering which changes the situation of the world from hostility to commitment. Man. It is in the act of remembering that the situation of the world changes from hostility to commitment. It is God remembering that preserved humanity in the flood. It is God remembering that sent Jesus back in time to proclaim the gospel to imprisoned spirits. So we've already asked, how does God respond to chaos? Now let's ask ourselves, what are we supposed to do in the midst of chaos? How do we respond to chaos? And the answer is... Remember. Remember God's abounding love. I would contend that the act of remembering God's love is a necessary first step in putting mercy into action. The alternative is relying on our own willpower. <laughs> and in a season of Lent, we do in fact dependent we are, don't we? When, when we consider how dependent we are on the mercy and love of God, we can either start, if, if we're talking about putting mercy into action, we can either rely on our own willpower, which is as much as we hate to admit it, terribly weak. (laughs) 
and, and is a well that can run dry very quickly. Or we can remember God's love for us. I would also suggest that it's the act of remembering that can allow us to do the impossible list that the voice of Peter gives us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read these words, and you tell me if you've seen it on the news, okay? Like-mindedness, sympathy, compassion, love, humility. These things that Peter is saying, you've got to do these things. Well, how on earth do we do these things? I would suggest we have to start with remembering. The voice of Peter goes on, 1 Peter chapter 3. Our acts of love, our acts of mercy, there is a really, really good chance that it is going to lead us towards experiencing suffering. There is an extremely good chance that somewhere down the line, we are going to remember God's love, we are going to act in mercy as a result of that love, and then somehow, someway, from some direction we never saw coming, we are going to experience suffering. The season of Lent ends with what is the greatest amount of love that could ever be shown. The cross. And the only way Jesus gets to the cross is if Jesus first dies to his own self. It's this death to self. It's this idea of our lives being laid down for others. There are plenty of ways that we can love, but the Scriptures very clearly tell us that there is a greatest way to love, and it's life laid down, period, <laughs> full stop. There are a lot of ways that we can love others, but there is a greatest way. No greater love has ever been shown than when someone lays their life down for someone else. I don't know if that encouraged you to do a good deed this week or not, <laughs> knowing that there might be suffering on the other end of it. Hear this encouragement from Peter, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, but even if you should suffer for doing what is right... You are blessed. I think Peter has exactly in mind the Beatitudes, where Jesus goes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the weak, right? In the kingdom, in this world that we're committing ourselves to, blessing equals suffering. We have to hear that. But I wish we didn't have to hear it, to be completely honest. The voice of Peter goes on, don't fear others' threats. You want to hear what other translations do with that passage is they say, don't fear what others fear. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's hard to not turn on any news channel. 
It's hard not to open up any social media. It's hard not to open up every, any newspaper and not see directly before you the idea of fear driving the narrative. It is just so clearly thrown in front of us. The voice of Peter says, don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So I want to say this morning, church, and I'm preaching to myself, do not grow weary for doing good. Don't grow weary when you are faced to have to forgive that person for the 490th time. (laughs) Don't forgive them seven times. Forgive them seven times 77 and even more than that, right? You remember when Jesus said that? Don't grow weary when you're forgiving for the 300th time. Don't grow weary when you're forgiving for the 400th time. Don't grow weary when you're forgiving for the 500th time. And when you say something on behalf of the marginalized, and when you say something on behalf of the voiceless, and when you do something for someone who is being so suppressed and oppressed and marginalized, and people don't like when you do it for them, don't grow weary. This last Ash Wednesday, we looked at Isaiah chapter 58. And in verse 6 specifically, God says that our fasting, our suffering, our life being laid down, ing, is supposed to produce fruit in the world that sets the oppressed free. I don't understand that. (laughs) For some reason, I've missed Isaiah 58 chapter 6 where at first I thought that fasting during Lent was what do I need to do so that I can be a better person. Friends, I'm telling you as clear as day in the scriptures, it says that our fasting is actually supposed to bear fruit beyond us, and it's actually supposed to make a tangible difference in the world around us, including but not limited to setting the oppressed free what? (laughs) What? How does me giving up chocolate for 40 days set the oppressed free? It doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. (laughs) And so we have to keep going, right? I mean, we, oh, the answer is it doesn't. (laughs) Give up, I mean, I should give up chocolate. We should, whatever. We should never eat chocolate again if we're being honest with ourselves, right? What's 40 days going to do? But I think, I think this season of Lent is going to be for me, maybe for all of us, a lot of us, it's going to be the toughest one yet, and it's going to be because of the year that we just had, right? It's, it's, we're we're going to get into early March, and we will be one year in to this pandemic thing, um, 
2020 is one for the record books, one for the history books for sure. And I, I shared in my small Ash Wednesday reflection this last Wednesday that as I observed the events and the actions of people throughout the year 2020, I said to myself, well, these don't sure look like people who practice Lent every year. <laughs> these, these, sure, these sure don't, and I'm talking about everywhere, right? These sure don't look like people who really, really try and lay their lives down for others. And so for that reason, Lent this year has got to mean so much more than it ever has before. There is just way too much on the line. There's way too much on the line. 